All right, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping. Uh, go ahead and grab a seat as we open in a uh, word of prayer. Father, we have much to be uh, thankful for, not only uh, this week of Thanksgiving, but uh, all the time. Lord, every single day we have uh, grace upon grace, and your mercies are new every morning, and, uh, and so we're grateful. We're grateful for uh, the redemption that you have provided for us in your son. We're grateful for the gift of your spirit. We're grateful for uh, your scripture, which is inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient. And, uh, and we're grateful for the gift that we have, that we get to uh, gather as a body and pray that you would continue to unify us and give us a love for your word and a word for uh, a love for your kingdom and a love for your son and uh, a love for each other. And uh, so I pray that you'd bless our time this morning. We ask these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. Those of you who have, the, the few, the, uh, the elect who have made it uh, this morning to our final class of the semester. Next year, we're going to tackle church history, but this semester we've been talking about social and political theology. In other words, how does our theology uh, relate to the way that we think about and respond to culture and society and, uh, and politics? And today we wanna finish this uh, semester up uh, by talking about education, which might not on the surface seem like it's all that political, but it actually is, as we'll see, but we'll get to that. So let's start by defining our terms. What is it that I mean whenever I say education? Well, imagine that someone were to come up to you and to say, I'm not going to get married until I finish my education. What do they mean when they use the word education there? They generally mean some sort of formal education, right? They could mean high school, they could mean college, they could mean a graduate degree, whatever it might be, Um, but they don't mean that they're never going to get married until they stop learning, right? They just stop learning in general. Trust me, you'll learn a lot once you get uh, married. So uh, sometimes by education, people mean formal schooling, Sometimes we mean learning in general. It just depends on the context. But for the uh, purpose of today's lesson, I'm using education as a subset of learning uh, that's distinguished by two things. So when we talk about education today, uh, know that I mean two things by that. The first one being intent, the second one being purpose. All right, so learning can be intentional or unintentional. All right, and so the the person who uh, uh, was up on their roof and they're putting up Christmas lights over the weekend and then they fall off the roof, they learned a lesson in uh, physics. They learned a lesson in gravity, although they didn't intend to learn that lesson. But education is something that is intentional. Learning just happens all the time. Sometimes it's accidental, but by education, I mean something that is deliberate. And so thus, learning in general can really have no real purpose, no real goal, but education has a goal. What is the goal then of education? Well, it really depends on what theory of education you subscribe to. In particular, it depends on your worldview, right? Your understanding of reality, what you believe about three things in particular, metaphysics, epistemology, and axiology, all right, those are big words that, uh, that basically just kind of form your worldview. What do I mean by metaphysics? Metaphysics relates to the nature of reality. What is ultimately real? That's what metaphysics is concerned with. So it's cosmological, it's theological, it's anthropological, it's ontological. All of those are components in, uh, in metaphysics. Uh, that is what is real, the nature of reality. 
And then uh, worldview is also concerned with epistemology, which is what is true. And how do we know what is true? So is truth relative or is truth absolute? Is knowledge objective or is it subjective? Is truth independent of human experience or is it formed as we interact with reality? Is it formed by our experiences? And then axiology, what is valuable? What is good and uh, virtuous? What is worthy of pursuing? So if you're a pragmatist, or a utilitarian, or you're an existentialist, or you're a secular humanist, or you're a Christian, your worldview will differ, and thus your goal, your telos, your end, your purpose of education will differ as well. This is why there's actual debates in culture, whether you're aware of it or not, there's actual debates today uh, regarding whether or not two plus two really equals four, or whether it could be five in certain contexts or six or some imaginary number like Slevin or something like that. This is why science and biology are all of a sudden thrown out when it comes to the question of what is your gender identity. It doesn't matter what your actual biological or genetic makeup is. So what we see in, uh, happening in culture today and, uh, and beyond culture and politics is much more, it's not really a debate about math it's not really a debate about uh, anatomy or genetics or biology. It's really a debate about worldview. There are these contrasting worldviews that are in tension, that are in opposition to each other. And unfortunately, as your worldview changes, so does your theory of education. So when it comes to the goal of education, there's a fairly large difference between historic, uh, classic education theory and modern theory, which is influenced by guys like John Dewey and Horace Mann, who were the founders of, uh, of public education uh, in the U.S. So let's note some of those differences between historic and modern views of education. So as it relates to the goals of historic classical education versus modern education, classical education tended to stress learning how to think. This is why there was an emphasis on things like philosophy and logic versus what to think which is more what modern uh, education theory does. This is why in, uh, in uh, schools today, you typically learn more about facts and dates, and most of us who grew up in public schools did not have to uh, learn philosophy or logic or those kinds of things. In fact, I made it all the way through uh, college without ever taking a philosophy or logic course. Classical theory emphasized being a good person which was measured by virtue and morality and ethics versus just simply being a good worker, which is more what modern theory is about, measured by uh, attainment or vocational skills or something like that. So in short, historically, education was more about the formation, formation of the whole person versus today the focus is more on the information for the mind. So in classical theory, it's more about formation. In modern theory, it's more about information. And why is this important? Because unless you identify the end, the goal, the purpose, the telos, you don't know the proper means to achieve that end. For instance, suppose that someone just calls you up and says, hey, do you wanna go hunting with me? So you say, sure, I'd love to go. And then you're packing a bag and you realize, oh, I don't know what to bring. I don't know if I should bring a rifle or a shotgun or a bow and arrows or a spear or a knife or something like that. You don't know unless you know what kind of hunting, right? It's pretty hard to kill a dove with just a rifle. It's hard to kill a bear with a 20 gauge shotgun. So unless you know the end, 
the purpose, the goal, then you don't really know the best means to accomplish that task. And the same is true when it comes to education. Unless you know the destination, unless you know the purpose, unless you know the goal of education, then you won't know how to get there. So uh, Aristotle said this uh, about 2,400 years ago. He said, at present, opinion is divided about the subjects of education. People do not take the same view about what should be learned by the young, either with a view to human excellence or a view to the best possible life, nor is it clear whether education should be directed mainly to the intellect or to moral character. Men do not all honor the same distinctive human excellence, and so naturally they differ about the proper training for it. If that was true 2,400 years ago, how much more true is it today? So your worldview is going to affect your view of reality and truth and virtue and the common good, and thus it's gonna affect the way that you go about achieving that good, that purpose, that goal. But from a biblical perspective, the goal should be clear. What's the purpose of education from a biblical perspective? The purpose is to glorify God by loving truth. That's true whether you're learning calculus or zoology or food toxicology or genetics or economics or Texas history or whatever it might be, the goal is the same and that is to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, including education, the goal is the same, to glorify God. So what does the Bible say about education. Well, the Bible says actually quite a bit about it. And in short, the Bible says that it likes it. This is a good thing. This is a noble thing. Look at Romans 12, two in your notes. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is, uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4.23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are uh, members one of another. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed Notice this, for lack of knowledge, Proverbs 23, 12, apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Proverbs 18, 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. That's about 10 passages there on seeking uh, wisdom, seeking knowledge, learning, education. We could take those 10 away, add 10 more, take those away, add 10 more because this is all over the Bible. What's the most repeated mandate or command in the pastoral epistles? To protect, uh, to protect doctrine, to learn, to know, to study, to teach, to commend, to entrust truth. So education is good. Christians should be pro-education. The Great Commission is not simply that we would go and make shallow converts, but rather that we would go and we would make disciples, i.e. learners. And how do we make disciples? By baptizing them and then by teaching them. But notice the goal isn't education per se. In all of these passages, the goal isn't just simply education as an end in and of itself, but education toward a particular end. We talked about that earlier. The goal isn't just to learn, but to learn truth. What does it profit a man to gain a doctorate 
in uh, postmodern feminist theory and to forfeit his soul. So we're to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. So the Bible is going to commend, the Bible is going to command education, training, learning, and discipleship. So what does that look like historically for Christians? When it comes to education within the church, early Christians, really what they did is they kind of uh, adopted and then adapted from other cultures, in particular from Greek, Roman, and then obviously from Jewish culture. And all of these cultures, Greek, Roman, and Jewish cultures, uh, had a few things in common. First, there was a very high value on education. In Greece, in Rome, in Jerusalem, there was a very high value that is placed on education. Second, there is this combination in all of these societies of the family and the public and the society uh, playing parts in educating the next generation. Not equal parts, but complementary parts uh, for educating the next uh, generation. It wasn't merely the family, it wasn't merely the the society, there was a combination of the both. Uh, And then third, as we've already mentioned, there was an emphasis on formation rather than information. Formation of the entire person, not just information for the mind. So in Greece, Athens in particular, which was known for philosophers like Aristotle and Socrates and uh, Plato, you have Plato's vision of education, that it should unify the individual with society, that it should communicate the four virtues of wisdom and temperance, courage and justice. So you have this as kind of a base model that Christians are gonna adapt. And then you have Rome, where the goal of education was to mold young people to the community ideals of virtue and piety, and given the fact that uh, a lot of the, uh, the spread of early Christianity was within Roman culture, you have them adapting and adopting some of this. And then you have, uh, obviously, the, the background of Jewish culture, where the primary goal of education uh, was not merely learning a skill, although there was a, a vocational uh, aspect, uh, you would learn how to be a carpenter or whatever it might be, but the primary goal in training was learning covenant, right? Everything in Jewish life was directed to that end. So whether it's you're offering a sacrifice or you're, you're making a pilgrimage to, to offer a feast or, or to go to a feast or a festival, even the mundane duties of everyday life, well, life were directed to this end, the end of knowing the covenant. Consider the the Shema. The Shema is a Hebrew word that means here. It's the first word in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children And then notice this, notice how it just applies to every, it's universal in its application. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. So yes, in Jewish culture, they have synagogues, they have times that are set aside for more directed learning, but all of life was learning in, uh, in Jewish culture. So Christians are gonna adopt and adapt these three elements, the value of education, the goal uh, of education being virtue, uh, being the formation of the entire person, and then the complementary roles of the family and the community, in particular the church uh, community. So let's look at some examples uh, of this pursuit of education throughout church history. To be ordained a bishop in Egypt in the fourth century, you had to have all of the Psalms, 
all of the Psalms, two of the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of the Gospels, and all of Paul's letters completely memorized. Right? If you've never tried to memorize extended chunks of Scripture, that's a lot. We're talking years and years of diligent, disciplined study. It's not like you watching a TV show a couple of times and then you memorize a line that Michael Scott on The Office says or something like that. We're talking about years of someone implying themselves to be able to memorize this. Also in the fourth century, Jerome translated the entire Bible from uh, Hebrew and Greek into Latin. What was that translation called? The Vulgate, right? Uh, because it, uh, it means common. That's what uh, the word Vulgate means. Since Latin was the common language, the common vernacular of the time. Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century said the following about education. No one claims to be able to teach an art unless first having learned it through careful study. With what incredible boldness then did the unlearned and unskillful stand ready to assume pastoral authority, forgetting that the care of souls is the art of arts. For it is clear that the ills of the mind are more hidden than the ills of the bowels. And yet quite often those who have no knowledge whatever Uh, of spiritual principles dare to declare themselves physicians of the heart, while those who don't know the use of drugs would never dare to call themselves physicians of the flesh. In other words, he says, if you're not educated, you're not in a position to be in pastoral ministry. And that was written in the 6th century. It might as well have been written in the 21st century. What about the medieval period? Well, a lot of bad stuff happens in the medieval period. We'll talk about that uh, next year as we talk about church history. But one of the really good things to happen is the further development of Christian education. In particular, in the 11th and 12th century, you have the birth of universities. Those are owing to Christianity. There is no concept of a university, of college, of that kind of thing, apart from Christianity. And in these universities in the medieval period, you would receive a classical education before you move on to advanced subjects. So that classical education would include an emphasis on the trivium, that's the three disciplines of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And then the quadrivium, which was arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And then after you receive an education in these liberal arts, you could then progress to one of the three higher faculties of theology, medicine, or law. So if you were a particularly talented student, you could then progress and study either theology, medicine, or uh, law. So you have a lot of guys, uh, guys like Luther, who are originally going to be uh, studying for law, who then end up uh, doing pastoral ministry or something like that. But it took three to four years to get your bachelor's degree. Three to four years to get your bachelor's degree, similar to what we see now, but then you would study the Bible for two more years. You then had to study and lecture on Peter Lombard's uh, four books of sentences for two or more years after that. Then after another five to seven years, you could become a master or a doctor. And you did all of this in Latin. It could take you 15 years of full-time study to become a professor. All right, so this is the medieval period, the birth of universities. What about the Reformation? Well, the reformers were big fans of education. In fact, you don't really have a, a, a time in church history except for the modern period in which uh, the church wasn't a, a big fan of education. So the reformers were big fans of education and the Reformation furthered the importance of education in a number of ways. I'll mention a couple of them. Uh, the first one being that it taught the priesthood of the believer which is really important because it meant that now there is this responsibility for the average uh, believer to be educated. You can't simply rely on the educated clergy 
uh, to know God's will for you or whatever it might be, you now have a role and responsibility for that. Uh, even if you are a commoner, you're not a professor, you're not in college, whatever it might be. Secondly, uh, the Reformation also saw this rebirth of the idea of sola scriptura, and it also made the Bible available in vernacular through translation. And so the Reformation, as it coincides with the, uh, the birth of the, the advent of the, uh, the printing press, uh, you have the, the Bible available through uh, translation in people's common vernacular. Up to that point, most people only had a Latin Bible, uh, if they had any Bible whatsoever, and most people couldn't read Latin, and so that was a problem. So the effect of both of these is that there is this increased need for literacy and schooling for the average person. And this differed from what had historically been the case in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and uh, in particular, the sacred-secular sort of divide. You have the clergy, and then you have the laity. And the clergy were educated, and the laity were not. The clergy were literate, and the, uh, the laity were not. In fact, uh, historically, if you, you trace kind of the, the movement of Protestantism, wherever Protestantism moved and wherever it flourished, you also see literacy flourishing. Whereas in more Catholic regions, you're going to have literacy rates lag behind quite a bit. What about the reformers themselves? Well, many of the reformers organized schools, developed catechisms to aid in instructing children, and so forth. So Luther had a doctorate in theology. He translated the entire New Testament from Greek in, uh, to German in just 10 weeks by himself while locked up in a castle struggling with spiritual attack and physical uh, ailments. John Calvin studied at multiple universities. He wrote one of the most popular Protestant systematic uh, uh, theology textbooks of all time, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Highly encourage you to read it uh, if you haven't. Uh, first published a, a commentary on Cicero that he wrote in Latin at the age of 23. So that's John Calvin. Ulrich Zwingli, uh, leader of the Swiss Reformation, in addition to having a strong formal education, he had all of Paul's letters memorized in Greek. All right, so the, uh, the Reformation was very high on the role of education, not only, certainly for the pastors, certainly for the ministers, but also for the average person. What about post-Reformation? We have guys like Jonathan Edwards, lived in the, uh, the 18th century. He went to Yale at 14, graduated with a bachelor's degree at 17, had his master's before he was 20. He then went on to become the president of Princeton. He sometimes studied 14 hours a day. It's considered to be the greatest mind to ever come out of North America. Not just the greatest Christian mind, not just the greatest theological mind, but the greatest mind, uh, period. So there's studies uh, or there's uh, stories of Jonathan Edwards uh, that he would have people over at his house, parishioners there in his church, and uh, he would have them over at his house and uh, his wife Sarah would cook them a meal and, uh, and uh, Edwards would be in his study studying. And then he would come whenever the meal was ready and he would eat with his guests. And then as soon as the meal was over, he would go back to his study and he would study. Probably owing, uh, that's probably one of the main reasons why he was eventually kicked out of his church because he studied all the time, never talked to anybody. But uh, Charles Spurgeon, he's this rare exception of a guy who's a, a pastor without really a formal education, but don't let that fool you since he did have a library of over 20,000 volumes he tutored Greek at Cambridge and was reading the Puritans by the age of 12, all right? If you can read the Puritans by the age of 32, you're doing good. He was doing it at 12. You also have, uh, during this post-Reformation period, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of those were started as Christian universities, 
Christian universities with the express purpose of training ministers. So you used to uh, have already, uh, you used to already have to know Greek, Hebrew, and Latin before you could even apply to go to uh, these schools. In other words, throughout Christian history, Christians have always held that rigorous, diligent application of the mind to study was a way by which we glorify God. Like we talked about last week, the Protestant work ethic. There is no area of life uh, that God doesn't demand our obedience, the way that we labor with our hands and the way that we labor with our minds. So the development of the mind is a way that we glorify God. There is no secular, uh, secular, sacred sort of divide. But fast forward to today, right? Does this, all that we've been talking about in terms of the history, does that seem to describe pastors and churches and the average evangelical today? Of course not, right? As the first sentence in a book by uh, Mark Knoll reads, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. That's the very first sentence. Uh, the book's called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Most pastors, most churches today are actually intentionally anti-intellectual. Anti-intellectual, they, they intentionally divide the heart from the head. That's unfortunate, that's unbiblical. We've talked about that a number of times here. Os Guinness says, it's always been a sin not to love the Lord our God with our minds as well as our hearts and souls. We've excused this with a degree of pietism and pretending that this is something other than what it is, that is sin. So evangelicals need to repent of their refusal to think Christianly and develop the mind of Christ. So it's obvious we should all seek, every single one of us should seek to cultivate our minds for Christ. Everyone is a theologian. You can't escape that reality. Even the fool who says there is no God, as we'll hear uh, this morning from Psalm 14, is still a theologian. That person is a theologian. They're just not a good theologian, right? So everyone's a theologian. The only question is, are you a good one or are you a bad one? So Pink Floyd was wrong when they sang, we don't need no education, right? Christians of all people should be passionate about learning, about training, about education, about these sorts of things. That doesn't mean you need to go and get a, a graduate degree, that everyone should quit your job and go to seminary or something like that. Please, don't do that. You don't need to do that. Doesn't mean that you have to necessarily go and learn Greek and Latin and Hebrew and all of those kinds of things. But it does mean that you should be passionate it does mean that you should have an interest in this. It does mean that there shouldn't be in your mind this thought, well, that's just something that pastors do. That's that sacred secular divide. That's that clergy laity sort of divide. There should be no thought in you, well, yeah, I don't wanna, uh, you know, I'm more of a heart person. No, you should be a head and a heart person. If Christians should be passionate about education, and we should, then we should also be passionate about educating our kids. And this is where, the, we get into the political side of education as we talk about the various merits of public schooling versus homeschooling versus private schooling. So before we dive into the various options here, I want to give a few qualifiers, all right? Four in, uh, in particular. Four qualifiers as we talk about homeschooling versus public schooling versus private schooling. Those four qualifiers are number one. For some of you, this is your thing. This is your soapbox, right? You're like Bobby Boucher's mom and the water boy. You think public school is of the devil. In which case, you might think that me quoting the water boy is also of the devil. Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum and you think that, uh, uh, that uh, homeschooling is for fundamentalists, all right? 
who are much more mental than they are fun. Some of you are already offended and I haven't even said anything yet, right? If that's you, I just wanna encourage you, please take a deep breath, right? You have opinions, you have convictions, that's great. But those opinions, those convictions must be subjected to scripture. All of our convictions, all of our opinions, all of our presuppositions, all of our biases, all of those must be subjected to the word of God. Some of you would be more offended if I were to say that public school is good or public school is bad than if I were to teach some early Christological heresy and that's a problem. This is less important than that. So let me be real clear. There, there is no one size fits all approach to schooling. I have strong convictions about what is best and most wise. I'm gonna share those, but this is not an issue of sin. This is one of wisdom. I think some options are much wiser than others, but none of the three are necessarily sinful. This is, in other words, adiaphora. If you don't remember what that word means, go back and listen to our sermons on Romans 14. The Bible has nowhere mandated the exact method that parents must use to educate their kids. So this is really an issue of the sufficiency of scripture. Are you going to apply the standard of the sufficiency of scripture to the issue of schooling or not? That's the first one. Second, the government doesn't have the right to tell parents how to educate their children. This is a really big one. Yes, we are to submit to the government in general, but there are some things that we render to Caesar and others that we render to God. Your kids belong to you and to God. They don't belong to the Senate or to the president or to the Supreme Court. I say this in particular because Big Brother has recently begun to overstep its bounds in this area. I'll give you a few examples, some of them international, some of them here uh, in America. Internationally, in 2006, the European Court of Human Rights outlawed homeschooling in Germany. If you attempted to homeschool your kids in Germany, you were threatened with uh, imprisonment and state seizure of your children. Right here in the U.S. in July 2009, a 10-year-old homeschool student was ordered to attend public school because the girl, quote, appeared to reflect her mother's rigidity on questions of faith. In other words, the mom was doing her job. This very year, as if there wasn't enough bad stuff that happened in 2020, a law professor at Harvard wrote an article calling for the outlawing of homeschooling in the U.S., and those are just a few examples. There's dozens of other examples where it seems like there is more of an infringement where Caesar is attempting to uh, get you to render to them what doesn't actually belong to them. So the government doesn't have the right to tell parents how to educate their children. That doesn't mean that a parent couldn't decide to use the government, but it means the government doesn't have that right. Number three, parents bear responsibility to teach their kids. We mentioned the Shema earlier. It's the role of parents to disciple, to train, to educate, to teach their kids. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 4, one through two, hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insight for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now that's a general principle. That's not a promise. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents 
have the ultimate, have the primary role in educating their kids. But at the same time, number four, parents can use others to supplement the education of their kids. They can't use others as a substitute for, the, uh, for their own responsibility, but they can use them as a suppl- uh, supplement. So church community and pastors and teachers and tutors and nannies, and if you're rich, au pairs and books and curriculum and sermons and theological equipping classes, all of these things can contribute, can be supplements. The Bible only states that parents have a responsibility to train up their child in the way they should go. It does not forbid them from using others to assist them in that task. Anytime you use a book or some DVD curriculum, you're using a supplement, you're using a resource, and that's okay. So speaking of supplements, what about public and private schools? Are those acceptable supplements or are those sinful substitutes? What should Christians think about homeschooling, private schools, and public schools? I'm gonna give some pros and cons for each, and then I'm gonna give you my thoughts on why I don't think that they're all equally wise. Some of you may disagree. I may step on some toes. For some, I'm gonna push too hard. For others, I'm not gonna push hard enough. So with the knowledge that someone's gonna be mad no matter what I say, let's dive in. Public school. Let's look at pros and then we'll look at cons. Pros of public school. It's generally not as expensive as private or homeschool since it's already covered by taxes. By the way, you'll notice a lot of generally sort of language here because there could be exceptions to some of these pros and cons. Another pro, it teaches kids to be around many different worldviews. It helps with socialization by putting kids in difficult social situations where they learn to adapt. It allows parents to have more time to take care of other responsibilities. It offers a higher level of competition in sports. As children get older, they have opportunities for evangelism. That said, I want to digress for a second and, and make a general comment. This is often used as kind of the most important thing when parents decide to do public school. They kind of use this trump card and kind of the, the, uh, the assumption or, or the, the uh, implication is that homeschooling or private schooling is selling out. Uh, it's not concerned about missions. It's not concerned about uh, evangelism. When in reality, there's a profound difference between saying, I'm not gonna send my six-year-old out as a lamb amongst the wolves versus saying, I myself as a 30-year-old or 40-year-old am gonna stay inside and stay away from the wolves. Imagine someone that criticizes the military for sending recruits to basic training before sending them to war. And so you just don't care about the war. The person would respond and say, no, we absolutely care about the war, but we wanna win the war. That's why we're not just simply recruiting people and handing them a rifle and saying, go out and shoot somebody, all right? so. That's one of the pros though. They do have opportunities for evangelism and missions and that kind of stuff. Cons of public schooling. The state determines what is taught. There's always the danger of being indoctrinated with unchristian views about particular topics and an unchristian worldview in general. Depending on the school district, the quality of education uh, can be uh, poor. It's physically more dangerous with bullying, shootings, drug use, sexual assault, et cetera. It puts kids around various bad influences. Some time is wasted. In other words, the actual learning time is not as long as the, uh, the, the entire school day. And then discipline of any sort is more and more taboo today. That's public school. Private school, some of the, uh, the pros. The teachers often have higher credentials. The work is often more rigorous. 
It helps with socialization by putting kids in different social situations where they learn to adapt. It allows parents more time to take care of other responsibilities. They teach topics many public schools do not. Uh, theology, philosophy, ethics, so forth. You have a little bit more of an emphasis on uh, classical historic uh, models of education. And then it can help uh, students get into better colleges. Some of the cons tends to be expensive. It's not covered by your taxes. Uh, some private schools can be very hypocritical, right? It can cause kids to become numb to actual real Christianity and often promotes legalism or something else instead of truth. Private schools can uh, just as much indoctrinate kids and uh, false doctrine can be taught as if it were true doctrine. Uh, children don't interact with as many non-Christians, at least not those who would admit that they're non-Christians. They sometimes don't offer as many extracurricular activities as public schools. Sometimes the competition in sports is not as good as public school. Homeschooling, pros, parents have direct control over what their kids learn. Many follow a classical rather than a modern model of education. The school day can be shorter. Education can incorporate the natural rhythms of family life, so vacations, field trips, those kinds of things. Kids are, not, uh, are often not as directly influenced by those with bad character, unless you just have a really bad sibling or something. Co-ops can help develop social skills and allow parents to specialize in teaching areas. Kids are more used to interacting with people of varying ages, so you're not just socialized into uh, interacting with people of your own uh, age group, but uh, you have to learn how to interact with adults and that kind of stuff, kids that are older or younger than you. Students can work ahead if they're succeeding and slow down if they're struggling. Some of the cons, it's much more work for the parents. It's not free. Your education is only as good as the parents who teach it. It may not have the level of extracurricular activities of a public school. Some forms of homeschooling lack social skills development. Colleges and government institutions vary on what they think of homeschoolers. Parents are limited in fulfilling other obligations while homeschooling. The competition in sports is often not as good as public school. And then it can encourage a monastic view of morality in which the subtle implication is that rather than engage the world, we abandon the world. Again, these are painting with a broad brush. I'm not saying all of the pros of any of these are always the case, or all of the cons of any of these are always the case. These are just general sort of ideas. So are all options equally wise? If we were simply viewing these three options, public, private, homeschool, in a vacuum, I think we would say they're all equally compelling, but unfortunately that's not actually the case. Instead, when it comes to the topic of schooling, we need to consider not just the concept itself, but also the particular context in which that concept is going to operate. In particular, the concept of public schooling per se differs from the contemporary reality of public schooling in 21st century America. Why is that important? Well, consider this uh, illustration. Imagine that someone asks you if it's wise to give your son a gun for his 18th birthday. Well, hopefully you would ask for some details Hopefully you would want to know, what are the specifics here? For instance, are you giving him a 12-gauge shotgun for your annual dove hunting trip? Or are you planning to buy him a fully automatic machine gun from the black market? Right? Those are profoundly different. Guns in general are good. I have guns. I love guns. Some guns would be really foolish, though, to give your kids. Or you're thinking about getting a, a pet dog for the family. That's great. But what if I said it was an abused pit bull with rabies, right? Pet dogs are perfectly acceptable, but not any and all dogs. By the way, cats don't work for this analogy. All cats are evil. They only want to kill you in your sleep. 
Well, this distinction between the general idea of something and the particular instantiation of that thing plays out in schools as well. Here's my point. I think that public schools in general can be a perfectly wise choice, but I'm fearful that the particular instantiation that exists today may not be the best option for most parents. So what I'm going to say is not about public school per se, all schools at all times, but rather is tailored to our contemporary context of 21st century American public school. So I wanna give a, uh, take a second and give a few concerns regarding public school today. But I, I say this with a, a bit of trepidation for a few reasons. The first one, because all of my education personally was from public school. I went to public school from elementary all the way through. I went to Texas A&M uh, University. So until seminary, all of my education was public school. Second, I come from a long line of public school teachers. My mom is still a teacher in the public school system. My sister was for 14 years. My wife was for two years. Multiple aunts are teachers. Whenever I would get together for uh, family reunions and all that kind of stuff, my mom and her sisters would talk about school. They would talk about students and so forth. And so I don't all at all want to undermine the importance of teachers. Nothing that I'm saying today is a critique of you and your work as a public school teacher, all right? I don't all at all want to undermine the importance of teachers. Thank you for what you do. You are light in the darkness and your labor is not in vain. I'm not criticizing teachers. I'm trying to give some warnings about a system that most teachers that I've talked to have said is actually really unhealthy as it stands today. And the third reason that I have a bit of trepidation about this is because I realize some of you don't have a lot of choice in the matter. For example, there could be single parents in here who would love to do private or homeschool that simply can't. And you should feel no shame about that whatsoever. That's partly why I said earlier, this is not about sin, but wisdom. And your call as a parent is just to be faithful and faithfulness is not measured by some abstract formula, but instead it takes into account your actual circumstance and life stage. Just like there's a profound difference between a woman who forsakes her children by working outside the home so she can afford to go skiing in the Alps, it's profoundly different from a mom who works to put food on the table so there are different motivations for public school and we shouldn't put them into a one size fits all sort of approach. So with that being the case, why would I want to issue a warning or a caution about public school today? Well, things have drastically changed since I was uh, in school. What was once on the fringes of education theory is now at the center. If it hasn't come to your local school already, it soon will. I don't say that as a prophet, I say that simply as a student of the time. When I say that things have changed. I don't primarily mean things like school shootings. Instead, I mean philosophical changes, ideological changes. In particular, there are now massively dangerous ideologies that are promoted in many public schools because public education is just a reflection of the public. As the worldview of the public changes, as the worldview of society changes, so the worldview of public education is going to change. And the public has already embraced these philosophies. In other words, as the Christian worldview is pushed further to the periphery of our culture, so it's pushed to the periphery of public education. So what are those ideological dangers? We've literally labored all semester to talk about these things. If you've wanted to know why is this talk at the end of the semester, because it really gets to wrap up some of the things we've talked about the rest of the semester. Things like postmodernism, things like socialism, Things like secular humanism and existentialism and feminism. 
and critical race, uh, critical theory in general, including critical race theory as a subset of that. In fact, one of our youth this semester was forced to attend an assembly in a local school where the kids were all told that all whites are inherently racist, that all minorities, by by definition, could not be racist. If you want to know why they were taught that, go back and listen to our talk on racism. This is the view of critical race theory. The LGBTQ platform with radically unbiblical views on sexuality and gender. In fact, it's becoming more and more common for schools and school districts to even withhold information from parents under the guise of confidentiality. You may not know this. I don't know. Your particular school, your particular school district may actually do this. If your kid identifies as another gender, and even if they begin to say that they want to transition to that other gender, many school districts have regulations in place that not only allow that, but also require that the counselors and teachers not tell the parents. In other words, in many school districts today, if your kid says, I want to transition, I want to be called by another pronoun, I want to be called by another name, I want to uh, identify as another gender, not only does that school district have to do it, but they are forbidden from telling you they're going to do it. That's crazy. And I know many parents think, not here in Texas, not in McKinney, I think that attitude is terribly naive. In fact, I know it is. Again, there are students and teachers right here in this church who can point to examples of this in our backyard. But even if it isn't here in full force, how much longer until it is? What besides massive revival would possibly prevent the continued drift of society away from historic Christian worldview? As long as our society has drifted, so is education. So am I saying that if you send your kids to public school, they'll end up worshiping Satan. No, I'm not saying that. Of course not. Am I saying that if you send your kids to public school, they won't have a Christian worldview? I'm not saying that, not necessarily. Although study after study has shown that Christian uh, students in public school generally score much lower in regards to Christian worldview. Am I saying that you're sinning if you send your kids to public school? No, I'm absolutely not saying that. But I am saying there are some grave dangers to be aware of And that it's your biblical responsibility to know what your kids are being taught and not to ignorantly or naively assume that these ideologies aren't present. To not read your experiences, maybe you who went through public school 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago or even 10 years ago and not just simply assume that's still the case because it's not. Culture has drifted dramatically over the past even decade, but in particular over the past generation. So it's one thing for you to say, I'm fully aware of these dangers. I'm fully aware of these dangers and I'm making this choice because I'm committed to engaging those dangers head on. It's another thing to say, I'm just gonna remain blissfully ignorant of what your kids are being exposed to for 40 hours a week and to make that choice in spite of the dangers just so that you can make a bit more money or so you can take a break from your kids or so you can find your value in some job, hobby, or whatever. The bottom line, it's your responsibility to make sure your kids are educated in a way that communicates truth. The goal of a parent is not to prepare your kids for college, or to prepare your kids for the job market. Your job, your goal, your purpose is not to prepare them for this present world at all. Your goal, your commission, is to prepare them for the world to come. That's the ultimate and primary task, to teach your kids to know and love truth as a means of knowing and loving God. 
And I think it's possible to do that using public, private, or homeschool. I just think some makes it much easier to do than others. So let's pray, and then we will take some questions where you might hate me. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that it is sufficient. Uh, I know that uh, there could be some in this room who, uh, who think um, I was too hard. I think there are probably some in this room who think I was too soft. And, uh, and yet we want to be ruled not by our opinions, but we want to be ruled by the sufficiency of Scripture. I pray that you'd give us wisdom. I pray that, uh, that no matter what choice uh, the parents in, uh, in this church make, that they would make that choice uh, informed and uh, informed really by a desire to be faithful to your word and not simply to, uh, to capitulate to whatever culture assumes we should do. And so I pray that you would help us, help us uh, in all things to have a uh, biblical worldview so that we might uh, actually uh, love and relate to you in your word as we should. We pray these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen.